Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you all. You're all doing well? Good, well, even if you're not, you are still God's favourite. Um, I was thinking to worship this morning and hear from God. It's great to see the prophetic uh, uh, shared this morning. And uh, if those words were spoken to you, if you feel like you would like to respond to that later, uh, there'll be some guys to my right willing to pray for you at the end of the service. Um, this morning we're going to go back into our Luke series. Uh, Jeeves was looking last week at um, the disciples arguing about who the greatest is. Um, but we need to just remember where we are. Just Actually, I've just had a thought. If you haven't, if you weren't at the family meeting last week, um, we've shared that now. And if you would like to catch up with all the news that was shared, um, and then just send an email to the office and they will send a, uh, the link and the video of all that uh, was discussed. It's really important that you are up to date with all that's going on. But anyway, back to Luke. Um, let's just remember where we are. We are on that same, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, the same night as the Last Supper, um, and his arrest is coming. Next week, his arrest is coming. And um, Jesus, as I said last week, looked at the dispute of the disciples, arguing about who is the greatest. Uh, there was this sifting of Peter, wasn't there? And this fascinating dialect between Jesus and Peter. Um, Peter's determined to follow Jesus at all costs, yet in a few hours from that moment, he would deny Jesus. And uh, Jesus knew what was going to happen, but knowing that he will restore Peter after his resurrection. We see in those verses, uh, and the ones to follow, that although the disciple Peter fails temporarily, there is always restoration for those who choose to continue to follow him and not let the defeat, the failure, um, overwhelm them. Peter repented and continued. Judas, however, did not. Uh, Judas was full of self-hate, his own desires. We'll see uh, next week when um, Jesus is arrested, uh, Judas approached Jesus with a kiss. And we might think on, you know, surface reading, that's a tender moment, but actually it was hugely disrespectful. Now, we've heard from God this morning, the prophetic, and we, we like to, who likes to hear from God? Good, good show of hands. Well done, everyone. We all want to hear the voice of God, right? Yeah? yeah. Good. But it hasn't stopped now. We have, the worship hasn't stopped, and hearing from God hasn't stopped, because we're about to delve into the Word of God. And as we enter into this garden scene, we're in the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane this morning, we get a glimpse of the Saviour of the world. The Son of Man is speaking to his Father. The very words of God we're about to read this morning. We should uphold these words. We should listen carefully to these words. And ultimately, we should learn from these words. Learn to love our Saviour from this. We get a glimpse of the humanity of Christ as he is anticipating what is before him. So we are in Luke 22, chapter 22, from verse 39. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. The words will appear on the screen. There we go. 
And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. As he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Lord, I pray that you will speak to us as your people through this word this morning, through your words, through the word of God that we've just been read. Come, Lord, will you open our hearts and our minds to all that you want to say to us. Amen. So, after leaving the Passover meal, Jesus went with his disciples to the Mount of Olives, a place that was uh, he went frequently. And uh, when he reached the place, which, as I've already said, it's identified in the other Gospels as the Garden of Gethsemane, it was just outside the city. I think we've got a little map here. We can see where the Garden of Gethsemane was. Just outside the city. And it's likely the owner of the garden would have let Jesus and his disciples sleep there. It's a possibility there was a cave they may have slept in. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane means uh, olive press. And according to Matthew 26, uh, they were singing a hymn as they were approaching the Mount of Olives. It said they, when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jerusalem is set on a hill. It's surrounded, the city is surrounded by walls. And to the east, there is the Kidron Valley. And as you go down out of the city into the valley, up the other side, there's a, a, a small hill um, called the Mount of Olives. It gives this great viewpoint of the city. And this dramatic scene full of profound emotion and deep suffering on the part of Jesus as he anticipates what is about to happen. Immediately after this, what we're looking at next week, Judas Iscariot appears with his armed group from the Jewish authorities, and Andre will look at that next week. Jesus knows what is happening. He knew what was going to happen. Let's just retrace the steps for a moment. Imagine the scene, the disciples uh, have left the upper room, they're singing a hymn and they're, they're walking through the city late at night. What sort of hymn would they be singing? Well, it was customary at the time of Passover, and in the Passover meal, they would sing extracts from a series of psalms. They were known as the Halal. They would sing maybe Psalms 113 to 118. If you know your Psalms 118, it is uh, spoken of to be a messianic psalm, talking of the Saviour, of Jesus who was coming. Here are some of the verses they might have sung if they were singing this particular psalm, which is very likely. Psalm 118, 1 to 4. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. I'm glad you got that bit, well done. <laughs> 
So later in that psalm, in Psalm 118, is that famous verse where it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There is so much meaning and significance in what we're reading this morning. And just to help us, just to visualise it, there's a a short video that we're going to watch just to help you understand uh, what it was like. This is from the producer of The Chosen. I don't know if you've seen The Chosen, the great series made on the life of Jesus. Let's just watch it. It's only three minutes. We are sitting in what could be or is nearby or could actually be the spot of the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the most intense passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Does this ever get old for you? It's breathtaking. It's my first time. It's it's overwhelming. So spiritually powerful. Right, because again, it's not about the actions that took place here. It's about the heart of what took place here. Jesus was experiencing heartbreak. This is where the most emotional moment that we've ever seen captured in the Bible took place. And uh, one thing that I didn't really make sense of until I was here in Israel this week was the importance and the relevance and the metaphor of the fact that this is the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane was in a grove of olive trees. I mean, first of all, think about it for a moment. He's called the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. Anointed with what? Anointed with olive oils. <laughs> to be set apart as the king of Israel, you had to be anointed with a holy olive oil, as well as to be a priest. The priests were anointed with oil before they stepped into their service in the temple. The Garden of Gethsemane actually means the place of the olive press. This is the place where they would press and crush the olives, and the oil here would be used in the temple. So here he is as the Messiah, the priest, and the place where the oil is being produced, and he's about to be crushed for the way to sin. Right, so that's the thing, is we actually were yesterday, and we saw an olive press, and how it was done, it was a multi-step process, but it was all about crushing. And so Jesus is surrounded by olives and is being crushed. To get the full oil out of the olive, you had to crush it not once, not twice, but three times. And this correlates to the three times Jesus asks his disciples to tarry with him in prayer. It's each time more is being squeezed out of him. Each time he's feeling more of the weight of the burden of sin that he's going to bear. Until the third crushing, the final crushing, where actually blood begins to come out from the So it's not an accident that they broke in this gospel account that he was sweating and bleeding. Because that is a picture of what it looks like, essentially, when, the, when olives are turned into oil. And the disciples were willing to go through that. And we are oftentimes unwilling to go through that. So the Garden of Gethsemane, for me, it's a reminder not only of this amazing story, not only what Jesus went through, but what we actually should go through. Because when you're pressing on those olives, more than anything else, it brings light. That, does that, that what they used on oil as well for olive lamps? Bringing light to the world. And that's what Jesus was willing to go through to become. The olive is valuable, but the oil is only produced as a crushing. Just a helpful video for us to visualize it, to grab the weight of it, what we're looking at this morning. But let's just dive back into those verses that we read. Jesus uh, is, instructs his disciples to pray. He says, pray that you would not fall into temptation. What temptation? Well, possibly that they would not desert him or fall away. We almost get a sense of what Jesus is asking of his disciples, of his followers. That in times of testing 
And we need a turning to God in a renewed fervour, lest we plunge into failure. We get an indication that the disciples would have had the possibility of denying him in a few hours. That's all right, Sheila, don't worry. But how do we avoid temptation? Jesus' command here is imperative. It is active. He says, pray. There's an ongoing commitment to pray. That is what will help us. An ongoing dependence on God. Jesus himself then moves away a little to pray. And in these words, you see the actual words of Jesus Christ, the God-man crying out to his Father. These words we're reading today are remarkable. We see Jesus considering what lays ahead. Have you ever had to do something that you knew would be painful, but would be totally worth it in the end? Jesus had to do something like this, but far, far harder than anything we've ever had to face. I remember once I was waiting for an operation on my nose. I had it straightened, believe it or not. I was unable to breathe out of one side. I had a deviated septum, so I could only breathe, breathe through one side of my nose. And waiting for the surgery, I knew they were going to knock me out because it's not you know, a local anaesthetic thing on your face. And um, I knew it was going to hurt when I woke up. And I woke up and it hurt. And the, there was bleeding for several days, in fact, because they wouldn't let me out because it wouldn't stop bleeding. But in the end it stopped, the pain went away, and I was able to breathe out of both sides. Believe it or not, my nose was wonkier than it is right now. I know if you're thinking, if you paid for that privately, you should probably get your money back. But no, I didn't. <clears throat> it was actually worse than this. I got punched on the nose quite a few times and it made it wonky. I can thoroughly recommend not getting punched on the nose. It hurts and it makes your nose wonky. I wasn't a Christian, you'll be relieved tonight, when I got into such scraps. But it was worth it. I've seen my wife go through uh, uh, three times quite painful events when she was in labour giving birth to our children. It looked painful, but there was joy in the end. There was suffering and then there was reward. But here Jesus is facing something far worse any of us have had to face. He is talking to the Father. We see the Trinity interacting here with each other. Let's look at those words closely. It says, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is this cup that Jesus is talking of? It is the cup of God's wrath. And in this section of Luke, from the Passover meal, Last Supper, we see the two cups, the tale of two different cups. One we get to drink, and one that Jesus gets to drink. We only get to drink one because he drank the other. 
The cup of suffering represents the wrath of God. In the Old Testament, the prophets of Israel spoke of God's wrath and judgment, again seen as a cup that the wicked will be required to drink. The, the two cups in Isaiah 50, oh, we've gone too far. Are you pressing it as well, at the same time as me? <laughs> yes, there we go. Don't touch it. In Isaiah 51, verse 17, it says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Jeremiah 25 says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. This cup is symbolic. It is representing the fury and anger and punishment of God. To put simply, Jesus pray, what Jesus is praying about is a cup that is full of God's perfect and holy hatred for sin. And here on the Mount of Olives, Jesus begins to taste what is in that cup, unmingled and undiluted by God's mercy. He's beginning to experience what will be required of him on the cross to save his people. And those of us who have received forgiveness through Jesus' blood here, we have in this garden a beautiful picture of the Lord's love for us. Despite facing great anguish and the anticipation of the wrath that was to come, it was enough that it made Jesus fall to the ground and sweat like drops of blood. And so much more would be the actual experience of the crucifixion. He is fulfilling here, Isaiah 53, 3, I know, you know I've got it on there, there you've already seen it. He's fulfilling Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It's what we were singing about this morning. His love, though, for his father and for us was so much that he went willingly to the cross, knowing what he would experience there. Here was Jesus, the Messiah, the one who came to save, the promised one, full of anguish. It says he was in agony. Here we have the Gethsemane Garden interpreting Calvary, where Jesus dies on the cross. And as Jesus asked, is there an alternative? What does he hear? Let's listen for the answer. What does he hear? Silence. If there was an alternative, the Father would have provided it. And in Jesus' prayer, though, the Father sends an angel not to remove Jesus from the pain of taking the sin of the entire world, but to strengthen him. The silence that came shows the great love of the Father. For he so loved the world, he gave. He gave his only son. Jesus' soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Consider that cup for a moment. Consider that cup that he was about to drink from. 
Consider the cup. He faces relational abandonment from the disciples. He faces separation from the Father who his soul has been intertwined for all eternity. But his love for us in this picture, in this garden, is on full display. His love for you in this garden is on full display. To enter into the garden this morning is to remind us of our sin, of my sin, and that what is required to pay the debt of it. Hebrews 5, verse 8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Philippians 2, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This moment required the Saviour to be greatly troubled and distressed and overwhelmed. That is what is required for my sin as we enter into this garden. Behold what our sin, our selfishness, our pride has required from the Saviour. We cannot enter into the Garden of Gethsemane and not be affected by the Saviour's love for sinners like you and me. And on the same night, Jesus contemplates this. He's involved in these two cups. In the same night, Jesus offered one cup to his disciples. saying, this is my blood, the new covenant. It is offered to us, all of us, to receive. We have a choice to receive that cup. The second, he receives the cup of wrath. God's wrath poured out on him. The cup that he drinks, though that which we should drink. And as he gathered the disciples to celebrate the Passover meal, Jesus shows them that he is the true Passover lamb. Just as the innocent lamb died in the place of the firstborn sons of Israel, Jesus' mission of love would lead him to give his life in place of God's rebellious people. His body would be broken. His blood would be poured out for us. Jesus' sacrifice would be the start of the new covenant or the promise from God, pictures as a cup pictured as a cup holding the blood that he would shed for us. This cup reminds us that God, by his grace, will save sinners who trust in Christ alone. Receive his love for you in your darkest hour. From this passage, the Saviour wants to offer you comfort. Receive his love for you in your darkest hour. Because he wants to offer you comfort. And there is no our Gethsemane. We have a Gethsemane moment. No, there is only one Gethsemane where he suffered so that he can comfort us. In our suffering. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in help to help in time of need. He invites you to this throne of grace so that you can receive mercy and find grace. He went through the garden so you could be comforted. He went through the garden so that Christine could know peace as her um, motorhome is approaching another vehicle in front of her. And when Jesus was in his darkest hour, the Father sent an angel. But in your darkest hour, God doesn't send an angel. He cares for you himself. You don't get an angel, you receive the Saviour. Why often I get asked the question, why did Jesus have to suffer the wrath of God? Why couldn't he just overlook our sin? Because God is holy and just. He will not let sin go unpunished because that would be unjust. We make these human decisions about what we think should and shouldn't be punished, but the Bible tells us all have fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot enter into his presence, into heaven, as a sinful people. Just at when a crime is committed, there is a debt to be paid. It is the same with our sin, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. And when you ask God to forgive you for something you did wrong, how can you be sure now that you will be forgiven? Because Jesus took the cup of God's wrath for us. We can be sure that God's anger won't be poured out on us. When we confess our sins, we can be certain that we are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. And in order to accomplish his rescue mission, he knew he would have to take the, the penalty for our disobedience to God. This meant he would become the target for all of God's wrath, God's holy anger towards sin. To bless us with the cup of the new covenant. Jesus would take that painful cup of wrath. Every sinner deserved to be punished, but Jesus would step in and take our place instead. So, as we read this, we, the word of God is alive and active. So what can we learn from this? How can we apply this to our lives? This brief but dramatic episode teaches us something important about what it means to follow Jesus. His highest priority was the will of his heavenly Father. And even when it was costly and dangerous, Jesus is teaching us to pray, your will be done. We see here that obedience to God may often be difficult and painful. And it's not enough to simply pray that prayer, your will be done, but we must also be willing to obey and, if necessary, suffer the loss of our convenience, our reputation, or even our lives. And the problem that we have is that all of mankind has, from the beginning of time, followed in Adam's footsteps, who made the wrong choice in the Garden of Eden by following his wife and failing to lift a finger to defend her. He did wrong by the Lord. Instead of choosing friendship with God, 
an eternal paradise. He chose to speak those words. He didn't say, your will be done, but he chose, Lord, not your will, but mine. And we've all been following that ever since. Charles Spurgeon says, may we not conceive that as in a garden, Adam's self-indulgence ruined us. So in another garden, the agonies of the second Adam should restore us. Gethsemane supplies the medicine for the ills which followed upon the forbidden fruit of Eden. Jesus' pray, prayers here are clear. He's not praying through theoretical possibilities, but the actualities of God's determination and God's divine will. And what we can get from Jesus' prayer on the Mount of Olives the theology of prayer is that prayer is designed to make God's will known to the one who prays. Not the person praying, the prayer, their will known to God. Prayer opens this window for which man can see God's activity and become part of it. And when we're praying, we are opening ourselves up to God and his will. That is what we're doing. We see here the open and honest, heartfelt prayer of Jesus. We don't have to try and hide our emotions from God in prayer. So often in times of trial, we could turn away from God wondering why it's happening. We, but we can literally cry out to him, Father. That's what it says in the other Gospels. And he said, Abba. In those times, we can sometimes take the steering wheel back. I remember crying out to God on many occasions. I have three children, some of you may know, and my youngest child uh, is a daughter called Nancy. She's now six years old. Uh, but when she was born, um, I believe this is right, the ear canal is straight in the ear, and over time it, it starts to curve, but she had an ear infection when she was born, or shortly after she was born. And it went on for many, many weeks, and it was the potential that this infection was going to travel back down the ear canal and go into her brain and give her brain damage, or seriously affect her hearing. But we cried out to God, and it's the time passes and you kind of not forget about these things, but the significance of it seems less and less. But we cried out to God. We said, Lord, will you break in? Will you get rid of this infection? Will you save this girl? God broke in. God broke in. We've cried out as a family, as a, a married couple, Gerald and I, on many different occasions. We can cry out, God, help me, save me. He can take it. He is not timid. We can learn from the disciples. They fell asleep at a crucial time when they could have been crying out to God. They weren't awake. They weren't aware. Watch and pray. Jesus is talking about being active. Specific prayer. Specific times of prayer make us stronger to resist temptation. The spirit might be willing. We might desire to serve God wholeheartedly, but the flesh, the human nature that we have is weak. Mine is. Yours might be strong, but mine is weak. 
There can be lack of focus, lack of discipline, lack of concern. And at this particular point, the disciples fell into that trap. They just collapsed in tiredness and thought, oh, we need a rest. They weren't alert to what was happening. Therefore, they were vulnerable and fell into temptation. They were going to be taken off guard by the challenges that were about to take place. Don't be taken off guard. Is there something you are struggling with, something you are tempted by? Pray. Doesn't happen immediately. It's not this, you know, magic wand that we wave when we pray and suddenly it, all, it falls away. But no, we are we need to be alert and pray. Press into God, knowing more of Him. There were big challenges ahead for the disciples, and within a few minutes of this being said, suddenly this great crisis comes upon them. Judas arrives with his armed crowd from the religious authorities. And their position was going to be very vulnerable. Is there something you have been asleep about? Something you've been asleep concerning? Are you praying for your marriage? Are you praying for your relationships? Are you praying for your children? Are you praying for your nation? Are you praying for your church? Are we in need of a great awakening? Are we in a significant moment as seasons change? And I don't mean from summer to autumn. Are we in a time where God is about to move and we are asleep? Are you ready to cry out to God? Are we taking it seriously that those we know and love are currently destined for hell, for an eternity apart from God? I think Janine's word was just so helpful this morning. We've been through a time where we've been damaged or hurt or we're tired or we're exhausted. Well now, let's follow Jesus' words now. So we, we resist temptation and we pray. It's imperative, it's active, let's pray. I pray that God will speak to you now, all of you, about what he wants you to wake up to. Are you really awake to the work of Christ in your life? Or have you forgotten the agony he went through in the garden and on the cross so that you and I could be saved? Is there temptations that you are falling into on a regular basis because you're not awake? Awake, arise, pursue him. I pray that he will speak to you. I pray that we will be awake when he needs us to be. Why don't we stand and pray? I pray that he will awaken us. I pray that God will now speak to you. Is there something you have been asleep to? Why don't we just put our hands out to him? Say, Lord, will you come? Holy Spirit, come and fill this room again. Fill each and every one of us afresh. And Lord, help us not be asleep. Help us to avoid falling into temptation. What patterns have you fallen into of life?
that you know is just not right? Have you fallen asleep in regards to seeing the kingdom advance in your life and in your uh, where you live and in this town and in your church? Lord, will you come and speak to us? Help us, Lord, be awake to what you want us to be awake to. And it might be even just little things in our lives that God is starting to highlight, saying, yeah, you've just let that slip a bit. Come to me, seek me in this. It's practical day-to-day -day stuff as well. In our relationships, in our work life, in our marriages, in, with our children. Lord, will you come and speak to us? Lord, we want to be about your work. We want to see the kingdom come. And your will be done. Yeah. I want to thank you for your church, Lord. Lord, awaken us, Lord. We want to seek you to see your kingdom. See your kingdom come in seven oaks and beyond. In Jesus' name. Amen.